back to EMIGcast for episode 32. I'm your host this month, Patrick Fink, coming to you live from sweltering hot Portland where the temps are scheduled to crest at 109 degrees. This month, we're sitting down for an equally hot chat with critical care fellow and human supercomputer, Dr. Ran Ran, to discuss the physiology of intubation and whether the risk of killing your patient is justified by the benefits of a definitive airway. We cover the commonly cited indications for intubation and hash out how the decision to sedate paralyze, and intubate inevitably drives your patient's physiology down the tubes at the most inopportune moments. Without further ado, here's Dr. Ran. All right, today on EMIGcast, we're again joined by Dr. Ran, a critical care fellow here at Oregon Health and Science University. Thanks for joining us here on EMIGcast, Dr. Ran. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. So we're here to talk about intubation and airway management, which is an enormous topic that isn't going to fit into one podcast. To narrow our focus, I'd like to uh, discuss why we choose to intubate patients and talk through some cases to help our listeners refine their thinking about airway management. But since this podcast is for medical students, let's start by talking about why a medical student or even a practitioner who doesn't regularly intubate patients should care about the topic of airway. That's a very key point because everybody who takes care of patients in the hospital should understand intubation. Intubation, in an essence, is a procedure, but unlike other procedures where you consult a surgeon and they know and are the experts in the indications and contraindications for, for example, an appendectomy, if for intubation, you don't consult someone else to figure out if your patient needs to be intubated. You need to know that. And so when you call the emergency medicine physician or the critical care doctor or anesthesia, you've already laid out the plan that, hey, this person needs to be intubated. So every provider, regardless of or not you're ever going to intubate a patient, should understand the indications and contraindications for intubation. That's point number one. Point number two is that you also need to understand that intubation is only a means to an end. And the end here is ventilation and oxygenation. And so every practitioner, even if you're not certified to intubate a patient, should understand the tools at your disposal to help with oxygenating a patient and ventilating a patient. So even if you rightly decided this patient needs intubation, you shouldn't just call anesthesia and sit back. You should figure out and actively try and oxygenate and ventilate your patients as best as possible to buffer them for that procedure. And then lastly, you as a practitioner or the med student or the primary team of this patient knows this patient the best. And as you'll see from our discussion today, intubation is much more than a procedure done at the head of the bed. It will affect every organ system of this patient's body, and it will affect their physiology very substantially. So I want to empower you as well um, to think about and decide upon the strategy, the drugs, and the approach towards intubating your patient, even though you're not the one doing it. So that leads us right into what do you think are the most often cited reasons for intubating a patient? Even if you don't think they're legitimate reasons, what are the reasons that people often talk about when they talk about intubating? I think let's start with the most legitimate reasons for intubation. And again, it's very important to understand here that intubation is a means to an end. It's just a way to provide an interface 
to deliver oxygenation and remove CO2. And so the most urgent or emergent reason for intubating someone is if they have some eminent threat on their airway. So for example, anaphylaxis, angioedema, airway obstruction. You need some way to provide a conduit for oxygen moving in and carbon dioxide moving out. However, having said that, you can imagine that's actually a very infrequent reason why we intubate somebody. Think of the last 10 intubations you've seen. Which of those were true epiglottitis or airway obstruction? The next level of, uh, for indications of intubating patients is to provide adequate oxygenation and ventilation for someone who has hypercarbic or hypoxic respiratory failure. Um, in these cases, you're again trying to provide an interface to maintain oxygenation and ventilation. Here it gets kind of tricky though because you have all these other adjuncts to support someone's oxygenation and ventilation, not necessarily through an ET tube. And what goes into the calculus for this decision really hinges on where you think this patient's trajectory is. So for example, someone with asthma or COPD frequently will recover pretty quickly with a few nebs and some steroids. So you might kind of drag your feet on intubating this patient. You might want to try non-invasive ventilation for a while first. Someone with heart failure with pulmonary edema, you might also drag your feet on that because you know that in 12 hours after some diuresis, some after load reduction, this person's breathing might just be fine. But someone with, say, severe pneumonia is kind of a different picture because you know this person's going to get worse for the next couple of days. And there's no point in putting a BiPAP mask on and leave it on there for days at a time when you know they're just going to need help for a couple days straight. You might as well put the tube in and give them more rest on the ventilator. And then the last reason, this is the reason that's probably most often cited for intubation, is to protect the airway. You know, this is the patient that is breathing just fine, oxygenating just fine, but their mental status is not quite there, whether it's because they had a stroke or they're intoxicated with something or, you know, they're sedated because you have to put them through an MRI or a CT scan or do a procedure to them. And now, you're not quite sure if, yeah, they're doing fine now. You're not quite sure if in an hour or two or three hours, they will truly be fine. And so intubating for airway protection is a last sighted reason. And this one's very tricky. There's no objective way to figure out whether someone needs intubation for airway protection. It's more so just a judgment call. Sounds like your approach to intubating a patient hinges on whether you can first improve their anatomy or second, improve their physiology. Does taking someone's airway in the form of intubation have any downsides with regards to their anatomy or physiology? Well, the anatomy and physiology are very important when considering how to intubate a patient. And when we talk about difficult intubations, I always split into those two categories. There are anatomically difficult intubations, and that's where having good procedural skills and a lot of different tools and and little things that you can play with can help you achieve your goal. And then there are physiologically difficult airways. Um, The physiology is dramatically altered and affected by intubation. Um, The way you want to think about this is you're basically giving a patient a very powerful sedative to make their mind go completely to sleep. And truthfully, if you just gave this sedative to someone on the street, for example, you have a pretty good chance of hurting that person. Following that, you're about to, you're also going to give this patient a pretty big dose of paralytic. 
so that they can't move a single muscle in their body. And if, say, you did that to someone in the street, you have a very good chance you're going to kill that person. So when you're thinking about what you're doing to your patient, you're giving them drugs that can potentially hurt them, and then you're going to give them another drug that's definitely going to kill them. But you're saying, don't worry, because I'm going to intubate you and therefore rescue you and give you and rescue you from the detriment I have caused. And that's why intubations are so scary. And that's why physiologically you have to have a very good understanding and a very good resuscitation to follow up with what you're going to do to the patient. Um, to split it up further, let's talk about the physiologic changes with intubation. When you sedate a patient, you will, no matter what agent you use, take away their sympathetic drive. So very frequently patients, especially in shock states or are compensating for shock states, will immediately become hypotensive. The paralytics, depending on which ones you use, have their own side effects. It sounds like you're thinking about airway is very based in physiology. What effect does intubation itself have on our patient's physiology, and how should that affect our choice to intubate? Intubation has very many effects on physiology. For one example, um, your patient with diabetic ketoacidosis, their pH is already 7-0, and they're breathing at 30 breaths per minute to try and keep their PCO2 down to keep their pH up. When you intubate this patient, you're going to introduce a period of apnea, no matter how good you are, how you do it, and that period of apnea will invariably cause the CO2 to rise and the pH to fall. So someone on the precipice, in terms of acidosis, intubating somebody can really hurt them. Another example, you have your patient with pneumonia, whose starting saturation is 88%. And that seems okay, but then you look at the patient and you realize they're on a non-rebreather, they're panting like crazy, and you should understand too that when you go to intubate this patient, you're going to make them apneic, you're going to take that non-rebreather off so you can do laryngoscopy, and that's also going to make their oxygenation a lot worse. And by the time you put the blade in, their O2 sat would have dropped very precipitously into the 60s. Another example, say you have a patient who came in as a trauma and is very tachycardic, but not hypotensive, but they're young. So you know that every single catecholamine in their body is being released right now to keep that blood pressure up. You go and you intubate this patient. You push the sedative, which takes away all of their sympathetic tone, and immediately the blood pressure is going to drop. When you intubate this patient, you secure the tube, you feel good about it, and you attach it to a ventilator, and now you switch negative pressure ventilation to positive pressure ventilation. And so to remind you, when you take a breath in, the pressure in your thorax becomes negative to pull all the blood back to your heart. When you put someone on positive pressure ventilation, that reverses, and now you are pushing blood out of the chest cavity. And for someone in hypovolemic shock, septic shock, hemorrhagic shock, this can make their blood pressure a lot worse. And then last example, say you have somebody who has angioedema or anaphylaxis or some sort of upper airway obstruction like epiglottitis. They're sitting bolt upright. They're tripoding. They're drooling on themselves and they're thrusting their chin forward so they can open their airway. Every muscle in their body is working to try and keep that airway open. So you have to understand that if you try and intubate this patient and you try and lay them flat, and give them a sedative and a paralytic, 
you're taking away a lot of that help. And that patent airway, even though it's patent only by a sliver, is now all of a sudden going to completely close on you. And so that would also be an adverse effect on their physiology, especially if you can't secure the tube in that difficult of an airway. That's a great rundown. I think that leads us into a good moment to jump into some cases so we can illustrate the principles that you've been talking about in a clinical context. Let's start with a, a relatively common one here. Let's say you're in the ER and a 73-year-old female is brought in by EMS from her nursing home. She's febrile, hypotensive, and has obviously cloudy urine. On arrival, she's tachycardic, hypotensive, her respiratory rate is 18, she's febrile, and her oxygen saturation is 87% on room air. What strikes you about this patient's physiology, and what would lead you to intubate her versus using other airway techniques? So this patient, what's striking to me is that this patient is in septic shock. You're describing the perfect scenario for it, probably from a urinary source, which is the number two reason for septic shock in elderly patients. Um, what strikes me about her physiology is that she's hypotensive and she's tachycardic to try and compensate for it. And so in terms of airway interventions, um, the most pressing thing to note here is intubating this patient right now would be an error. Yes, her saturations are low, but you haven't even done anything to try and bring that up. And so the endotracheal tube is a little bit premature. The first thing I would do is basic emergency medicine. Establish IV access, put this patient on some nasal cannula and jack it up and titrate to a sat greater than 92. Put the patient on the monitor and then start IV fluids because you're going to want to resuscitate this patient's shock. What would push me towards intubating this patient is if this patient's saturations do not rise or if this patient's mental status is so obtunded that I'm really worried about her and the next time I assess her, I see her gurgling on her secretions. Then this become from an airway protection issue to having something eminently threatening her airway. And if I was going to intubate this patient at that time, I would be very cautious in that I, want, I would want to make sure that I've done everything possible to try and increase that O2 sat to above 95%. Whether that's to be using a non-rebreather or using CPAP or using high-flow nasal cannula, it doesn't matter. I need that number a little bit higher. The other thing I'd really want to be careful about is to address her hypotension. Again, if you try and intubate someone who's hypotensive, you're probably going to make it worse. So I would start by making sure she's gotten at least two liters of fluids in, if not three. And I'll actually ask for the pharmacist to start hanging in some vasopressors to run it in through a peripheral IV. Because I want that blood pressure normal before I start, and I want to have the option to give more when the patient's blood pressure drops during intubation, which it invariably will. But like I said, I would be hesitant to intubate this patient unless something was eminently threatening her airway. Great. Let's get into one that's a little bit more airway-directed here. Say you're working in the ICU and you're called to evaluate a patient on the floor. This is a 67-year-old guy with a history of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction who's had four days of orthopnea, nocturnal dyspnea, and shortness of breath at baseline. He's been afebrile, but now he's hypoxemic with a SAT of 88% on the pulse oximeter, despite the fact that he's on 15 liters of oxygen by non-rebreather mask. The floor staff is concerned. Yeah, and they should rightly be concerned. 
So in this particular case, the most dangerous thing to this patient is their degree of hypoxia. You're not giving me the rest of the vitals, so I assume they're kind of normal. But the hypoxia is, is what you need to address. The thing is, though, you have a lot of cool tools at your disposal to help with hypoxemia. And some of the things I would attempt even beyond the non-rebreather option, especially in someone who has heart failure, is to consider using CPAP or BiPAP, whichever you want, but really what you need is the PEEP. When you add PEEP and 100% FiO2, you can make their saturations a lot better. And for a patient that is, in this example, sounds like this patient is totally awake and is able to talk to you, then they're able to protect their airway and they would handle having a mask over their face just fine. And so I don't really think this patient necessarily needs to be intubated. Of course, I would be more... Uh, more concerned about this patient. What would tip me towards intubating this patient is if you put them on a CPAP at 100% FiO2 and you started with a PEEP of 5 and SATs didn't really move and you kept jacking the PEEP up to 8, to 10, to 15, now to 20 and still their SATs aren't increasing. Well, now you're trying to think about ways to rescue this patient by providing a better interface for delivering oxygen. So maybe an ET tube would be helpful in this case. However, I would really raise my eyebrow at this, that a PEEP of 20 on CPAP with 100% FiO2 is not raising their O2 sat. And I would be very concerned about actually intracardiac shunt in this particular case. Um, and if you try and intubate somebody with an intracardiac shunt, you're actually going to make that shunt a lot worse. So this is where if you still, again, if you still have the time, do all the investigation you can before you pull the trigger on intubation, which includes maybe an echo with bubble study to try and understand why they're so hypoxemic. Because if it is an intracardiac shunt, if you intubate them or BiPAP them, it doesn't matter. It's not going to help because the problem is not in the lung. It's in the heart. Let's go back to the ER now. You have a 38-year-old guy who comes in by an EMS. He's a type 1 diabetic. He's coming in for drowsiness, cough, diffuse abdominal pain, and vomiting. His heart rate is 104. He's tachypnic to 24. His blood pressure is 100 over 70. He's afebrile, but his skin is warm and appears dry. And his arterial pH obtained in the ER is 6.9, with a PO2 of 95, CO2 of 28, and a bicarb of 9. Most importantly, his respiratory rate is high, and it, he appears to be fatiguing. So this is the metabolic acidosis, um, intubating metabolic acidosis, which everyone is taught to be very scary. And it is scary because, like I said, if you intubate such patients, their pH is going to drop further. Um, and not only that, in young healthy patients, when they hyperventilate, it's hard to match their minute ventilation with a ventilator. Um, what I'm saying is that the ventilator can deliver 20, maybe 25 liters per minute. But when you hyperventilate, you could probably get 60 liters per minute if you're a young, healthy adult. So it's just hard to match that. Having said that, though, this patient, you're presenting a case that sounds like this patient needs to be intubated because they're fatiguing. Now, that's a, that's like a very subtle clinical judgment call. And, and the signs of fatigue it, is important to point out here. The signs of fatigue is when someone starts to demonstrate paradoxical abdominal breathing or they're starting to use almost purely their accessory muscles and you're, you're looking like 
they're looking like they're not moving a lot of air because their diaphragms are not moving as much. So it's kind of a very subtle exam finding. But yes, when you see that, it's time for you to try and take over. So how should you take over? Well, in this patient, what's going to kill them the fastest is their acidosis. And so what I would probably do is I would try and buffer them a little bit. And I, I mean this by uh, not just buffering it with, say, bicarb, which I don't think will work very well, um, but actually buffering them by helping them hyperventilate. And so this is where you can strap them onto BiPAP if they're awake enough to tolerate it so they could have even bigger ventilation and get more support for each breath. Or if they're really attended, this is a patient you do not rapidly rapid sequence intubate. This is a patient that if they're attended, you put a bag over them and you bag them fast and you hyperventilate them fast because you want to bring that CO2 even lower than 28, ideally in the, in the teens or the single digits, so you could get their pH up slightly before you intubate. If you're bagging the patient or if you have good ventilation with Bi- BiPAP, you can consider using some bicarb. The textbook answer is use bicarb if your pH is below 7.1. The truth of it though is that bicarb will only work if your lungs can breathe it out because it's just going to generate more CO2 if you don't breathe it out. So I don't use it for someone who's not ventilating appropriately. So if you're bagging them and you put them on BiPAP and they look like they're moving air, you can try and give them an amp or two of bicarb before you attempt the intubation. And then you intubate and you have to go very fast. Um, that's one approach. The other approach is actually to do this entire procedure awake. Because if they're breathing very quickly on their own, and it looks like they're handling it and they can keep doing it, you might consider not paralyzing them at all, not introducing an apnea time at all. Just let them breathe fast, squirt some lidocaine back there, and then do an, give them some sort of sedative and do an awake fiber optic intubation so that they continue to breathe up until the point you have the tube in, then you inflate the balloon and you attach them immediately to the ventilator or to a bag so you can continue hyperventilating without giving them any sort of apnea time. All right, here's some ER bread and butter for you. This is a 22-year-old guy with a history of IV drug abuse brought by EMS after he was found down in the park. He's known to have injected heroin immediately prior to losing consciousness and he's unresponsive respiring four to five times a minute. His SpO2 is wavering in the low 80s on room air, his gag reflex is absent, and your colleagues suggest that he be intubated for airway protection. What strikes you about this patient's physiology, and is there anything here that would actually lead you to intubate this patient? Okay, this is a very good question. So there have been many um, teachings on when to intubate a patient for airway protection. You know, you probably heard the heuristic of GCS of 8, less than 8, intubate. Uh, it's nice because it rhymes, but that actually doesn't come from anything. And that only really applies in trauma, especially head trauma. It doesn't really apply for patients that are intoxicated. Because very frequently, and I bet you as the listeners know a friend or know yourselves who have gotten to a GCS less than 8 after a very, very hard night of partying, but you didn't need intubation, and you were just fine. Um, so for intoxication, it's kind of a different beast. And the GCS, though concerning, is not in and of itself a reason to be intubated. Um, the way I think through this particular case is the problem here is that this patient has a toxic encephalopathy to the point where 
they are not really responding to you, and they're hypoventilating with a low respiratory rate. This is all very prototypical of opiate-based intoxications, and the history of IV drug use and heroin abuse um, really supports that. So the airway management plan here is Narcan. Narcan will fix all of those problems, and you will not need to intubate this patient at all. And so um, the thing is, though, when you dose Narcan, you have to understand that Narcan is not like a solution. You can't just call for Narcan. You have to attach it with a dose and a route, just like any other medication. And sometimes you have to titrate this medicine to effect. So the way I dose Narcan uh, is, especially if they're like a cancer patient or have really severe chronic pain issues, you don't want to give them a full dose. The ACLS says the dose is 0.4 milligrams, which is not true. I I usually give 0.04, then 0.2, then 0.4, then 2, then 4, then 8. And so you're rapidly doubling the dose and walking it up to see what has an effect. And it's going to work in a minute or two, so you'll know. In the meanwhile, you know, you just get to the head of the bed, maintain jaw thrust, and if needed, you'll bag the patient until there's an effect. If you don't get an effect, though, uh, which is not totally uncommon, it might mean that they're on a different medicine that's not working on the mu receptors. Uh, it might be Seracol, it might be Trazodone, it might be Lithium, something else that is depressing their mental status. And in these cases, where your only option is to just wait this out, but no one's willing to hold jaw thrust for the next day, you might as well intubate the patient. So in that case, uh, you might as well just go ahead and, and, and do it. But again, in these cases, you want to make sure you pre-oxygenate the patient appropriately because you just never want to start, start with the SpO2 in the 80s if you can help it. So get some nasal cannula on, a non-rebether, or just straight up bag them with 100% FiO2 so you can get their SATs up and bring their CO2 down. Um, RSI is not a bad option in these patients if their SATs were normal because you, they probably ate something as well and the risk to bagging them would be that you induce vomiting. They probably already vomited, to be to be honest with you, and you might be pushing some of that further down into the lung. But I think this particular patient with a starting SAT of 80s in a healthy young patient probably means that their CO2 is already up as high as 80 to drive their PaO2 down into the 80s. And so I would bag this patient before intubating them. Thanks for walking through those cases. It sounds like your approach is really physiology-centered. For our students who aren't going to be making the decision to intubate on the floor, you're giving a good framework for how to think about what they actually can do for their patients. So we're talking about identifying the primary physiologic reason why you might want to intubate those patients, and then identifying what things you can do to improve that physiology. Because regardless of whether you're going to intubate them, optimizing that physiology is going to be a great thing for them. Because installing an airway is going to negatively affect all of those parameters. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And um, the analogy really is that the intubation is a, is a means to an end. And unfortunately, though, intubation is basically introducing a short-term harm for the potential for a long-term benefit. Because everything that the laryngoscope and your sedative and the paralytics do would adversely affect your oxygenation, ventilation, and your blood pressure. And so you're going to, even if your your patient absolutely needs it, you have to buffer them up so they can tolerate this procedure. 
Of all of the procedures available to an ER or critical care physician, airway gets a lot of attention. Why is that? That was my exact question when I was a medical student. I just couldn't believe how much people were talking about this topic or how much how many books were written about it. Like at the end of the day, you're putting a piece of plastic through a vocal cords. Simple as that. The thing is, though, there is nothing more frightening than an airway gone wrong. And part of that is because very few things kill as quickly as hypoxia or kill as quickly as a failed airway. And like I said before, most of these patients that need intubation, they were doing okay. I mean, they weren't doing amazing. They just need some help. And you, you're there to try and offer them that help. But the second you sedate them and paralyze them or lay them flat for the intubation, you have turned a situation from airway protection to airway failure. And if you can't rescue them from the airway failure that you produced and they have an adverse consequence or God forbid they died from a failed airway, that feels incredibly heart-wrenching. It feels like you murdered the patient. You pushed those drugs that really caused them harm and you couldn't rescue them from the harm of paralysis, which if you give to anybody on the street, it will kill them. So there's just nothing as sphincter tightening as managing an airway when you know what it going wrong looks like. And you only have to see or imagine one case of a bad airway to have that fear instilled within you. The other thing is hindsight is twenty twenty, but no more like there's no other place where it's so vividly clear as it is in airway management. Talk to any of your attendings to recount on their experiences of a bad airway. And they will immediately tell you, oh, if only I had anesthesia there, or if only I had that bougie ready, or I had the fiber optics set up, maybe I could have rescued the entire scenario. But that's the thing. That's the thing. If you weren't set up for it, you're not going to be ready for it. Because when you paralyze somebody, you don't have a lot of time. You have to get an airway. And the bottom line is, you have to oxygenate and you have to ventilate a patient, or they will die. I think we've just terrified all of our listeners. But those who are going to go into emergency medicine or critical care after they get over that terror are going to ask themselves how they can start preparing themselves, if only mentally, for these situations. So the next time that one of our listeners is watching someone obtain an airway or manage someone's oxygenation and ventilation, what are the questions that you think they should be asking themselves to help them simulate their thinking on managing that airway? That's a really good question, um, and I think the the best thing to do in those situations is to try your best not to focus on the actual intubation itself, which is actually incredibly simple. You know, left hand sweeps the tongue, right hand passes the tube, but rather look at the setup. How is the patient set up? What is their positioning? What are they attached to? The monitors, is it going off frequently enough? What are you using to pre-oxygenate the patient? And then when the, when the provider is laying everything out, really think in your head, hey, if I was doing this, what is my plan A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K? And really run down all the steps necessary. Every single one. What would I do if? 
and what equipment would I need? And then pay attention to how the providers in front of you are doing it because I am pretty sure uh, they are not as prepared and you might find that you are actually more prepared than they are by running through these mental simulations. When I lay out an airway now, I frequently get a desk all to myself and I lay out the equipment I need in the order of my plan, which includes a plan A, a plan B, a C, D, E, F, G. And I, I, every time I lay it down, I don't open these things, but they're in front of me. Because again, when the airway fails, you only have minutes and you don't have time to send someone outside or scramble and find something that you needed. It needed to be there 10 seconds ago. I think that's a lot of great fodder for our, our listeners to chew on. I certainly have more to think about the next time I encounter the patient with the, the falling oxygen level or pronounced hypercarbia. Thanks for joining us on the show today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Well, that's it for another episode of EMIGCast. Be sure to check out the resources for this episode on emigcast.com and use the links there to subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Twitter for more emergency medicine and critical care tidbits. You can also find all of our old episodes on a huge variety of clinical medicine topics, as well as topics about the logistics and spirit of navigating the medical student world. Until next time, friends, do good work.